0: Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers American Meat delivered right to your front door. Go to goodranchers.com slash goodranchers.com slash Okay, guys, are you ready for this? I wish that we had had like a sound effect that said, are you ready for this? As soon as we came to this opener, because we have another incredible, fascinating conversation for you about the Great Reset, how everything that's going on right now, what was happening in Canada, but more importantly, what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, the messaging about Russia and Ukraine, what the heck is actually going on? We're going to sift through some of the propaganda there. We're going to look at why it seems like some of the worst people in the world are all saying the same thing about that, how this plays into the Great Reset, the World Economic Forum. And we are going to link our past episodes on this. I just want to say like, we were one of the first shows that were that was talking about the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset, not because of me. I didn't discover this stuff, but because of the guests that we had on. Glenn Beck has been talking about it for ever, even before really anyone knew what it was. But my guest, uh, Justin Haskins, really has been on the front lines. He was one of the pioneers of talking about this. And I'm thankful that Relatable has been a place where people have learned um, about this. These episodes on this particular subject have been my most popular episodes, my most listened to episodes by far. And if you haven't listened to the previous ones, it's okay, you'll catch up in this episode. You'll understand what's going on, but you will understand very quickly why these episodes just uh, just spread like wildfire and then go back and listen to the previous ones. Get ready for your mind to be absolutely blown, not necessarily in a good way. Just remember after all of this, God is sovereign. All right, let's just remember that. God is completely sovereign. He is still in control. And it's important for that to continue to be our hope. Now, before we get into this conversation, um, if you think that the Great Reset and Biden's Build Back Better slogan isn't a part of a greater global movement by what we typically refer to as kind of the global elites who we will actually define in this episode, then I want you to listen to this clip of different world leaders saying strangely the same
1: thing. And enable us not just to come through this crisis, but to come back stronger and build back better. But this global pandemic has also created an opportunity to build back better. To keep drawing together our shared experience and insight and enable us to build back New Zealand even better. But the COVID-19 pandemic can also be a moment for resolving long-standing conflicts and addressing structural weaknesses. Four sets of priorities can guide the response to build back better
0: Okay, so that was just a few. There are a ton of global leaders who have said the same thing, and these are all lines by the World Economic Forum. You'll notice that the last guy said structural weaknesses. What we'll talk about today is them wanting to take over the global economy and change it according to the interests of the people who run the World Economic Forum and their um, their uh, various ambassadors in different world governments and in corporations. Justin Trudeau and all of those world leaders There's also a montage out there of them using the term Great Reset, all right? So I wish it were a conspiracy. I really do, but it's not. To break it all down for us is Justin Haskin. So without further ado, here he is. Justin, thank you so much for joining us yet again. So we were talking before the camera started rolling that... The world may be ending. And we're going to try, <laughs> as we always do, to end on a positive, optimistic note. If nothing else, we know that God is in control. Um, But tell us, I mean, if you just kind of want to start big picture, how is what's happening with Russia, Ukraine, lots of other things that are going on? How does this fit into this whole Great Reset narrative that we've talked about so many times?
1: Right. So I told you when we first started talking about the Great Reset that Almost everything that happens is somehow related to the great reset. Yeah. And I I know that some people might hear that and think, all right, this guy is, you know, he talks about the great reset all the time. So of course, you know, to a hammer everything looks like a nail, right? right. But I really truly believe that the evidence shows that there are good, that there there is a a lot of, uh, there's a lot of reasons to think the Great Reset is tied to what Putin is doing in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So to understand this, the first thing that people need to grasp is that there is an ideological war, and this is not a controversial point. There's an ideological war that's going on in Europe, in Asia, in the Middle East, and in Russia. And that ideological war is between people who I would consider to be international fascists. That's the Great Reset people. They're not necessarily invading countries and doing things like that per se, but they want to impose their ideas on the rest of the world through the financial system, through social credit scoring systems like uh, environmental, social and governance scores, ESG scores, um, and all the stuff we've talked about before, right? And this is like Kaz
0: Schwab. This is... George Soros, this is some, I mean, okay, I'm sorry. I I hate to pause and interrupt you when you're on a roll, but just for some people who may not know, first, you're talking, okay, so you're talking about these fascists, which I would agree, they're not like your traditional fascists that are necessarily rolling into a country with, you know, a tank and taking over, but they are, they're imperialists because they are trying to conform countries to their vision of what they want the world to be through a variety of policy changes and through infiltrating governments with people who will basically do their bidding. Before we keep going into what that actually looks like, can you just Tell us a little bit about how these people came to power, Klaus Schwab. How did these people like have as much influence as they do? And how did they get started on kind of manifesting all of their plans in the way that they are?
1: Yeah, so there's been a movement that's been going on for decades and decades and decades. Uh, Klaus Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum, uh, he started the World Economic Forum, I think back in the 1970s, mm. and that's where he first launched this idea of a Great Reset. Back then, he was calling it stakeholder capitalism, mm. and that's sort of how it's developed over time. And he's, he's, there's been a whole bunch of manifestations of it. The Great Reset is the most recent one. Um, but the idea uh, developed really with Klaus Schwab and a bunch of other people around that period of time in Europe, and it has spread over uh, over the succeeding decades, over the past 50, 60 years, where they've bought, gotten more and more buy-in from corporate leaders who are all behind this, uh, from banks and financial institutions and others. I think largely because other sort of left-wing movements failed, uh, they failed for a variety of different reasons. But the biggest one I think is that they couldn't figure out a way to get enough funding to have, say, the Green New Deal is a good example of that. Um where do you come up with you know 50 to 100 trillion dollars for the Green New Deal in taxes and in the sort of traditional ways that you would raise revenue for a program like that? How do you get countries uh, elections uh, or, or um, voters to sign on to something really radical like that? Um, and especially when you have big corporations and wealthy people often fighting those causes because, They don't wanna be taxed. They wanna keep more of their money, right? They don't like regulations. They want uh, a freer marketplace. Well, how do you get those people on board? And what they came up with was this solution of let's just buy all these people off, not just through traditional cronyism, but through massive amounts of money printing. Let's buy them off, get them on board, and then figure out a system for determining who the good companies are and who the bad companies are, who who the good banks are, who the bad banks are. That's what ESG scores uh, are designed to do. Mm -hmm. And then we'll reward the people who are on our side and we'll destroy the people who are not through the financial system. And that way we can reshape society through the corporations, through the products and services that people buy, through social media platforms, technology, and other things, without ever having to pass a law because that was the other challenge, right? They would pass these sweeping laws in some cases and then courts would throw them out, especially here in America. So. If you think about just Obamacare alone, like just the individual mandate, that's that's that one thing alone was tied up in court for years and years and years. So if you really want to reshape society, it would be so much easier if you could get all these businesses and banks to go along with you and then kind of impose it through them. And that's exactly the system that has uh, developed over time. It's, it's an alliance of all these very powerful interests, and they're all getting rich off of it. Um, This is very well documented that they're they're all getting very rich. They're promised that they're going to get rich off of this sort of scheme, as I would see it. And in the process, they get to have these elaborate dinner parties and Davos and talk about how they're saving the world. And they get to stroke their egos and their savior complexes and all of that get fired up. And so. I think it's been a long time coming, and you could argue that it goes all the way back to the progressive movement of the early 1900s, even the late 1800s. This idea of if we can get the elites to buy in, and we can get all the corporations going in the right direction, get all of the powerful special interests going in the right direction, and we can reshape society without ever having to pass a law in order to do it. So this idea has been around for a long time. It's just the most recent manifestation has been particularly successful because of advancements in technology, the financial system, COVID, and all this other stuff.
0: And just remind people, when you say reshape society, I know you mentioned stakeholder capitalism, um, but what does that look like kind of in practical layman's terms? When they say they want to reshape society, what exactly do they mean?
1: Uh, the primary way they plan to do that is through the ESG scores that I was referencing before, mm-hmm. where essentially they would judge a business and investors and banks, on how well they align with certain social credit scores. And this These this is already happening,
0: by the way. You said would, but this is currently happening. Companies have ESG scores that they are honestly more concerned with than um, what their customers want, their the size of their customer base, or even profit. They are more concerned with their ESG scores than any of those things. And so we've talked right. about like, oh, why would Amazon or why would Disney do things that they know is going to polarize half of America? They don't care because they're really not beholden to certainly conservative America. They just don't care.
1: Yeah, that that's exactly right. See, in in a free market economy, the idea is that people, the businesses are going to respond to what customers want, right? So if customers want free and open platforms on social media, then that's what the free market is going to give them. That's the idea. But what happens when the biggest customer becomes government and these big financial institutions and pr- public private partnerships where these financial institutions and government are working together? Well, then they're, more, they're the most important customer. So the market's going to do whatever they want. So and that's exactly how the system has developed. And then when you add on top of that all of these threats to make ESG social credit scoring systems mandatory, legally mandatory, they all these corporations believe this is going to happen anyway. It's inevitable that they're going to be forced to do these things. Uh, the Biden administration has already put together. Uh, Groups within the SEC, the the Securities and Exchange Commission, that's what's in charge of essentially regulating the stock market, and various other bodies within the uh, American government to uh, kind of move in the direction of mandatory ESG disclosure and eventually having mandatory ESG scores. In the European Union, the European Parliament voted last year to create a mandatory ESG system for all of the European Union. The vast majority of the companies in the European Union big companies, would be uh, would have to follow these ESG metrics as well as a bunch of small businesses and everybody in their value chain, which means anyone who does business with them, whether they're a European Union company or not, would also have to comply with these rules or else these companies in the European Union could be punished. And that hasn't become law yet. It's close to becoming law, probably will happen this year, but it's already passed through the parliament and now it has to go through the European Commission. So If you're a company and you're looking at all of the money behind this, more than $100 trillion behind this this, uh, ESG movement, you look at what's happening in Europe and you see this is almost about to become law there. You see regulatory agencies in the United States starting to push this. And you think to yourself, "I, I might as well just go along with it and be on the good side of all of these people. And then that way I get to look like a hero. The media will talk about how sustainable and responsible and equitable I'm being. And I get to make lots of money in the process because all of this money is being printed and distributed to the people willing to play ball with this through the Federal Reserve and other institutions. It just makes too much sense for them to to go along with this system. And that's exactly why you're seeing companies like Coca-Cola suddenly training their uh, employees to be less white and you see american airlines suddenly getting involved in voting laws and microsoft all of a sudden caring about whether you have voter ids in because georgia of the
0: esg score
1: it's because they're worried that if they're not on the right side of this esg system that they're going to lose access to capital and and there's a whole bunch of evidence to suggest that's already starting to happen in a variety of different businesses and industries.
0: Yeah, I think there's probably a few factors too that play into that. Yes, it's the ESG score, but I also think that, you know, most heads of companies are pretty amoral. And if you're going to drift one direction, you're going to drift with you know the way the water is flowing and how the mainstream is flowing is towards progressivism, towards this progressive secularism and towards these newfangled definitions of equity and fairness, which are not in actuality, equitable and fair. And so if someone pressures you like within a company, for example, and, you know, just says, hey, if you care about fairness, if you care about the marginalized, if you care about equality, then you have to implement this kind of training and these kind of policies. Well, someone who doesn't have any moral fortitude and who doesn't really have any principles themselves, of course, they're going to be easily bullied into that kind of thing. So there's also some of that, that there's a lot of ignorance, I think, within these institutions to think that in order to truly be on the right side of history, in order to, you know, do the right thing, then you have to go along with what Black Lives Matter says. You have to say that, uh, you know, uh, women, uh, trans women or women or whatever the dogma, whatever the maxim of the day is, I think there's simply a lot of just flimsy people and those things kind of go hand in hand. Yes, there's kind of the more nefarious people, the calculating strategic people within these institutions and organizations. But I think the vast majority of people just go along to get along. So they're just going to go with, you know, whatever slogan the Democratic Party or progressives or the elite kind of put out and just say, yeah, okay. Um, And I do think like people want to know, like, how does critical race theory, how does the degradation of our education, how does like? The whole transgender, like gender switching kids. How does that all play into this? And like some one thing that I say um, is that I think in order for the great reset to really take root, in order for them to see the vision of the world that they want, which is basically... All countries kind of govern under one system, one international law that they dictate, that the World Economic Forum and all of their cronies in the different parts of the world the different corporations, different governments, that they dictate, that they say, well, you know, you have to function this way. You have to abide by these policies. Only these kinds of people can buy and sell because we want to reward people, corporations and institutions that basically do our bidding, which can be whatever they want. Maybe right now it's protecting the climate, maybe right now it's LGBTQ rights. Whatever they say is the good, right, true, moral thing, they're going to reward people within their international system that basically help them push that particular agenda, which happens to be right now a progressive agenda. And that's why you say it's not necessarily communism or socialism that they want. It's not necessarily or primarily the confiscation of private property. It really is more of a form of fascism because it's the wedding of government and corporate power um without any kind of pretense of helping the poor or anything like that. It really is just for the sake of power to have kind of a global government, a global economic system so they can control everything and basically do what they want. And so the way I think the only way that they can implement that is one, to try to um, push down any form of like any form of nationalism or any uh, any desire for a sovereignty of your nation. Even patriotism is kind of hostile to this idea. Um, putting your country first certainly would be hostile to the idea of kind of one global government. And also that means that that means that they have to push for the degradation of Western strength and of American strength. Because right now, I mean, we're teetering on the edge, but American America is still the greatest world superpower. You still have a lot of patriotism in this country. We're still mostly a center-right country. Most people in this country are proud to be Americans. Even if they say they're not nationalists, they have kind of part of that in them. While You can't have American strength, you can't have one world superpower that is in charge if you want this global governmental system that, you know, you want to do your bidding. So how I think critical race theory, the the degradation of morality, the demonizing of religion, the dismantling of our education system, the confusion that comes with gender ideology, how I think this all plays into that, it's just weakening the American populace. It's weakening the West. It's confusing people. It's putting people into a state of uh, of dependence, of amorality and immorality to the point to where they aren't able to think for themselves, and therefore they're not able to fend for themselves. If you don't believe in any kind of God or objective morality, you'll look to a government to tell you what is right and to take care of you. So it does all play into each other. And I know that I'm kind of on a rant right now, but it's not necessarily that the World Economic Forum dreamed up all of these things themselves. It's that they use these things in order to sow discord and honestly, ignorance and confusion and dependence in the United States and elsewhere. Do you think I got that assessment vaguely correct?
1: I think you absolutely nailed it. That is 100% right. And that is actually the key to understanding why I think Everything that you just said is why I I think it is tied to what's happening right now with Russia and Ukraine, Uh, because fundamentally the other part of the equation. So we just talked about there's this ideological war. That's half the war right there. That's that's one side of the war is everyone we just described who I would consider you could fall into the Great Reset camp. Right. On the other side uh, is this camp that is very fascistic in many ways. But they're nationalists, and they have, and traditionalists as they see it, and they don't want, they don't want, now we're we're not talking about in America, we're talking about in Asia, and in Europe, and in Mm -hmm. Russia, Mm -hmm. and in places like that they want nothing to do with this great reset system. They don't Mm -hmm. want to reimagine the social contract. They don't want to be told what kinds of businesses and industries they can have and which ones they can't. They don't want Western European influences affecting every part of their world. Mm -hmm. They don't want it. They're willing to do trade. They're willing to engage in economic activity globally, sure, but they want to have control over their own destinies. To give you a good example of it, I mean, because I think it segues perfectly into this, uh, Vladimir Putin is one of the most staunch critics of many of the same things that you and I would, would say are, are problematic in, the Western, in Western society. Uh, and so one of the things that he said was, uh, today, many nations are revising their moral values and ethical norms, eroding ethnic traditions and differences between peoples and cultures. Society is now required not only to recognize everyone's right to the freedom of consciousness, political views of privacy, there's his authoritarianism, but also to accept without question the equality of good and evil, strange as it seems, uh, concepts that are opposite in meaning. And then he says, Russia can be a defender of all of this with its great history and culture with many centuries of experience, not of so-called tolerance, neutered and barren. He's making a social commentary there, but of the real organic life of different peoples existing together within the framework of a single state. He's talking about sort of Russia, Eurasia, and all of that. And so... What he's he's saying, we know that there are more and more people in the world who support our position of defending traditional values. And uh, Russia's role is to prevent movement backward and downward into chaotic darkness and to a return to a primitive state. So again, he, he's talking mm-hmm. about these moral issues, these moral problems that, w- that exist in the West he, he, where essentially uh, we've thrown out every idea that has ever existed before. We're redefining absolutely everything. We're tearing down all notions of traditionalism for thousands and thousands of years, things that basically everybody in the West believed to be true are now no longer, you're not even allowed to say them without being yeah. ostracized right. from the world, right? Like, like a man is a man. <laughs> Well, and and a million other things, too. I mean, you can't say anything today that, that you could say, say, 10, 15 years ago without, you know, really being careful because they will destroy. They will try to destroy you if you do. So Russia sees itself as a leader in this movement against the spread of this liberal this really extreme liberalism now, that emanates out of Europe.
0: Really see themselves as that or do you just think that Putin is saying that they see themselves as that and really it's just about imperialistic power and what he's kind of saying is more just kind of propaganda to try to get some people on
1: his side. Right, so there's definitely a propaganda element to it. And I want to be really clear that Putin is a a authoritarian, tyrannical, awful, murdering thug. No doubt about it whatsoever. I'm not trying to justify anything of these saying, but at the same time, I think you can be both an authoritarian imperialist and believe that you are the champion of traditionalism right. and defending the Russian way of life. Right. And the other thing is that, you know, people have a tendency to look at all of this and they say, well, you know, What is this really? It can't really just be about, you know, defending traditional values and defending, you know, sort of Russia as an idea and all of this. That doesn't really make any sense. And I would agree with that. Uh, and, And people have really struggled to find sort of an economic geopolitical reason for why he would do what he's doing now, despite all of the negative repercussions that he's facing as a result of it. And what I think is really interesting is that the Great Reset offers the answer for why there might be some urgency right now. And and that answer is Russia is essentially dependent on oil and natural gas and coal, those industries. It makes up about a fifth of their entire economy. Uh, About 40% of all the government revenues that they bring in come from those industries. So they are heavily dependent on fossil fuels. Now, what is the Great Reset? been saying, what's one of the biggest parts of the Great Reset over the past year and a half? It's that they're going to use the global financial system to destroy the fossil fuel industry everywhere, that they have over a hundred trillion, trillion with a T, a hundred trillion dollars behind this movement to phase out all of fossil fuels. So when you have the world's most powerful leaders getting together as they did in Glasgow last fall, uh, governments, corporations, United Nations, banks, financial institutions, investors with $100 trillion saying, we're going to have a great reset of the global economy. We're going to have a new social contract. We're going to impose our uh, uh, ideas of what society should look like on everyone through this system. We're going to rework the economy so that there is no more Um, fossil fuel industry. We're going to completely destroy that. And you're Russia, and you're looking at all of this, you're saying to yourself, doesn't that mean you're saying you're going to destroy our entire economy? Because our economy is built on this. We can't survive without this. And they're openly saying that this is our plan over the next 10 to 30 years. Then at the same time, they turn around and say, and we're going to try to expand NATO. And we're going to try to expand NATO, which is sort of in the Russian mind, seen as the military arm of the great reset type people, nations and leaders, I mean, we're going to expand at that least into see Ukraine. It as
0: the military arm of the West for sure. I mean, they are already surrounded by several NATO countries.
1: That's right. That's right. And these countries that surround them that are part of NATO and Ukraine, which wants to be part of NATO, have a very long, bloody anti-Russian history going back into the Soviet Union and even before that. So these countries don't like Vladimir Putin, they don't like Russia, and now they have NATO moving in, going onto the border of, of Russia, simultaneously saying, we're the same people allied with NATO that control NATO are simultaneously saying, and we're going to destroy your economy uh, by phasing out fossil fuels everywhere. And it's not because of market forces, it's not because people don't want it or that it doesn't work anymore, that there's something better out there. It's that they wanna fight climate change and they've just decided they're going to impose this on everybody around the world. So when you add all that stuff up, and you look in, from the perspective of an authoritarian, right? if you're already a tyrant, you're already a murdering tyrant that throws people in jail for saying things you don't like, right. that assassinates opposition leaders, and that kind of stuff is happening, is it really surprising that then you would turn around and say, I'm not gonna let this happen to me and to my country, I wanna be a hero of the Russian uh, you know, national fascist way of, of the world, and I'm going to do everything I can to solidify that legacy And this, I think, is part of that movement toward him doing that.
0: Okay, guys, taking a quick break from that amazing conversation to tell you about our first sponsor for the day, and that is GenuCell. All right, this skincare company, I've been advertising for them for quite a while. They have a new ultra retinol cream that uses dual action skin technology that visibly reduces and improves red, inflamed, and yes, even blotchy skin. So if you're like me and you don't want the Botox, you don't want the needles, you don't want any kind of invasive stuff procedures on your face, but you're still looking for ways to look your best, then GenuCell could be a really great option for you. Uh, They combine uh, hyaluronic acid and breakthrough fatal retinol. I'm trying to pronounce that correctly so that you can smooth away forehead wrinkles, laugh lines, plus renew and revitalize your appearance without the harsh effects and irritation of retinol. Uh, Genucel Ultra Retinol is safe for sensitive skin, provides effective hydration and skin renewing benefits for all skin types. And if you don't like it, if it doesn't work for you, no problem. You get a hundred percent of your money back guaranteed. For a limited time, you can try Genu ultra retinol free with Gin most popular package. Uh, save over 60% on Gin Cell Top Sellers right now and get an extra 10% off when you enter my special code Alley at checkout. That's genuine.com slash alley code alley. That's G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash alley code alley. So Ukraine, though, why Ukraine? Is it just because it's a neighboring country? I mean, I know he said in his speech, which I think was largely propaganda, he said, you know, we have one heritage, we have one culture, you know, we share somewhat of a language. There are already parts of Ukraine, eastern Ukraine, that are very pro-Russia. Um, is, I mean, does he really believe that? Does he really believe, do you think that, you know, Ukraine is, was really always meant to be a part of Russia? Or do you think that's just kind of what he said? And what it actually is, is that he feels boxed in by these hostile powers and by this new system that basically wants to, uh, wants to tank their entire economy.
1: I think it's a, a combination of things, but I think what's really important for people to understand is that this is not, the idea that Ukraine should be part of Russia or at least much of Ukraine should be part of Russia is is not an idea that, that Vladimir Putin alone has. This is an idea that is actually very popular in Russia, generally speaking. Um, and there's all sorts of reasons for why this is the case that go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, Kiev is actually a very, the, that's the capital of Ukraine is a very important part of Eastern Orthodox religion. That's a branch of Christianity that's extremely influential and popular in Russia and very important. Uh, Kiev has played a very important role in that. Um, there, There are all sorts of these so kind of mythologies, historical mythologies that talk about the Russian people, ethnically speaking, and how Ukraine actually played a very what we think of Ukraine today as a very important role as kind of the epicenter for a while of the Russian people and the development of that. And, and so there's a lot of reasons for why he might believe that Ukraine is very important um, from just a pure geopolitical standpoint. It offers really great ports. There are important pipelines that go through Ukraine. Ukraine's a very large country of 40 million people, so there's that. They absolutely hate the Russians. So the idea because in large part because of what happened during the Soviet Union, millions and millions of people were slaughtered in the Ukraine. Um, there are many Russian people who live in Ukraine because during the Soviet Union they in they the exported Russians or imported Russians into the Ukraine. Um, and so there are many parts of the Ukraine like Crimea and Eastern Ukraine. That are full of Russian speaking people that consider themselves to be Russian and want to be part of Russia and don't want to be in the Ukraine. So there's all kinds of of reasons for why he would actually look at Ukraine as an important uh, part of the long term puzzle. But I think the biggest one for him is that if your goal is to create a legacy of reshaping the world, defending Russia defending uh, nationalism just generally. And Ukraine is right on your border, a very powerful nation, absolutely hates Russia, and is trying and has been for many years trying to get NATO to uh, become a member of NATO, to have NATO forces move into Ukraine. It makes perfect sense if you're Putin to say at some point. We have to stop. And how did all of this start before they actually made a military move into Ukraine? What what did Vladimir Putin demand? The The thing he was demanding is, I want promises from everybody involved that Ukraine will never be part of NATO, will never be part of NATO. I want promises. I want it in writing. And basically everyone said, nope, we're not going to make that promise.
0: Because he felt like that would box him in even further. Like he basically would have seen that as an act of further hostility because I've seen some people on the conservative side who I really respect push kind of push back on that theory that it has nothing to do with NATO at all he's already surrounded by other NATO countries this is really just him being kind of a madman and he has no even pretense of a justification for and then I've heard a lot of people say what you're saying well no he actually he would see Ukraine joining NATO as a huge act of aggression and it would mean that he was further boxed in and that he would just see that as a huge threat.
1: Yes. And and I think that the evidence strongly supports. I mean, Vladimir Putin's been around for a long, long time. Yeah. He's been running Russia for two decades. Right. The idea that he's just suddenly lost his mind and all of a sudden is doing irrational things. Again, I'm not saying he's a good guy. He's a terrible guy, but he's not an irrational person. He yeah. makes he's very cold and calculated and smart, and he he has a strategy in place. And going back to what something that I said earlier, it is a widespread belief amongst many people in the Kremlin and in the leadership in the military and elsewhere that eventually you have to do something about Ukraine, that Ukraine eventually has to become part, at least parts of it have to become part of Russia uh, in order for them to ever be secure. And these ideas have been f- circulated within the upper echelons of Russian government and in the, in the military uh, going back to the late 1990s. This is not a new idea. This is something that's been around for a long time. Um, and, and the Russian people themselves largely support this. One of the interesting things about what happened in Crimea is when you look at, Vlad- and this really might be more telling than anything at all. If you go back and look at Vladimir Putin's approval rating just amongst the Russian people in the two years or so leading up to the invasion of Crimea in 2014, Vladimir Putin had been in a, a trend of a slow decline in popularity. Now, by American standards, because he's an authoritarian and everything, when I say he didn't have a lot of popularity relative to what he had before, I mean, his approval rating was in around 60% or so, okay? But it had been 80-something percent, and now it's down to 60-something percent. So he goes into Crimea. That happens after the fact. Whether that has anything to do with the approval ratings or not, you know, let's just put that aside. He goes into Crimea, his approval rating goes up to over 80% again and stayed above 80% for a long time. Then if you look at over the past few years, his approval rating went way down again, back down to the 60s or so. And then the most recent approval rating we have from, say, January or so, his approval rating started going back up again once he started banging the war drum because people in Russia want to rebuild this idea of a Russian empire. They want, there are very proud people. They want to believe that, that their country plays an important role in the world. They want to reunite the Russian-speaking peoples of the world. They want to defend what it means to be Russia. And they are they are very nationalistic society. And Putin is offering them something that, that is, the West can't offer them because most of the West is fundamentally telling them, We want to destroy every semblance of what it means to be German or American or Russian or whatever. We want to redefine every traditional idea that's ever existed in our societies. We want to throw religion out of the public square. Russia is a very religious nation in many ways. And we want to do away with with all forms of uh, traditional culture. And if you're Vladimir Putin, it's really easy to step into that void and say to the Russian people, I will defend you from this. I will stop this from happening. I will not allow these people to destroy our society. That's an easy political argument to make. And his popularity, uh, his approval ratings, the fact that they went up after what happened in Crimea is a really strong signal that that's what the Russian people want. They want to reunite Ukraine. They are willing to go to war over defending traditionalism. And I think that's exactly what's going on uh, right now.
0: Yeah. Wow. There's so many different parts to that. One, they are. So in the traditional sense, when you're thinking about the actual definitions of nationalism versus imperialism, They're, you know, they're opposites. A true nationalist people, a true nationalist country is happy with Russia being Russia and France being France and America being America. They want to pursue and preserve their own interests, but they're not going to, they're not imperialist. They're not trying to make other countries their country. So Any kind of authoritarian regime, I think, has a little bit of both, though. They've got, okay, I've got this national... Like, okay, Hitler, he said he loved Germany and he was, you know, proud of being German, but he also wanted an expanding German empire. And so I do also, like, when people... They associate nationalism with, uh, you know, with Putin or nationalism with Hitler. Well, not necessarily. There's a healthy nationalism. And then there is also this kind of nationalism that we are seeing that wants to overtake other countries and make them like their own country. And obviously that is something that I oppose. And I also want to just like make clear, because I've seen this a lot on the right, I'm sure that you have, because of the things that you are talking about, which I think are abundantly clear that that is what Putin is doing. He's stepping into that void and he's saying, look, I'm going to preserve Russian culture. I'm going to preserve traditionalism and all of these things. I think some conservatives here are tempted to sympathize with Putin and what Putin is doing and actually to be pro-Putin. I don't think that's the majority of People on the right, I think some people are mislabeled that just because they're asking questions and pointing things out that are true. Um, but some people on the right are because of the things that you're saying. Here's what I would say to those people. While it is tempting to say, yay, someone is, you know, advocating for traditionalism and religion and the things that we care about, still uh, the interests. Of Russia are opposed to the interests of the United States because there will always be a world superpower. Russia wants to be the world superpower. China wants to be the world superpower. They'll probably ally together. I want to talk about that in a second. Right now, America, even though we're teetering on the edge, we are still the world superpower. We basically set the rules for how things function. And while that has not been perfect, having a world superpower that actually believes at least we're supposed to believe in free speech and freedom of religion and due process. That makes a big difference versus world superpowers that do not believe in that at all, that actually imprison and murder and torture dissidents or religious minorities or political minorities or whatever. So even though maybe some conservatives and maybe even some Christians might be tempted to sympathize with what Putin is is doing, he's still a dictatorial uh, maniacal in some ways. I'm not talking unpredictable, but just immoral, authoritarian, and nuclear power who hates the United States. Okay. So his interests and American interests are not aligned, even if we can kind of understand you know, where he's coming from. I do need conservatives here to understand that that Putin doesn't like you. He's not interested in upholding your values. He's not on your team. He doesn't want to link arms with you. Just like the Soviets of your, he hates the United States. He hates Western civilization. He hates personal liberty. And like you're gonna end up in the same gulag as everyone else. Okay? So I, I just want to make that clear for people because I do see the sentiment of being pro-Putin by some people on the right. And like, we can't do that. We can understand where he's coming from while still saying, yikes, like he wants Soviet Russia. America should not want that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's such an important point. What What people need to understand is that when Americans talk about defending traditional values, our traditional values, there is obviously some... There is some crossover there is some you know shared values between traditional Uh, Russian values, and as Putin would define them, and traditional American values. Just like there are some shared values between every single culture in the world, there's shared values between traditional American culture and traditional uh, Iranian culture. (laughs) Yeah, or whatever, right. But obviously, there's also a lot of differences between us and Iran, right? And no one would say that traditional American values are the same as traditional uh, Iranian Islamic values. No one would say that. So it's really important to to understand that the differences are extreme. When we say defending traditional American values, part of that part of one of the things built into those values is this concept of individual liberty and religious freedom and freedom of the press and freedom of speech. And all these things that Putin would say when he talks about traditionalism are actually not part of his tradition, that's the opposite. So when he's defending traditional Russian values, he is fundamentally opposed to traditional American values by definition. That's, that's part of the differences between our cultures, again, as he would define them. So they are, they, just because he likes certain, just because there are certain traditional Russian values that correspond with traditional American values does not mean that we agree on even most things in reality as you pointed out vladimir putin and the people around him hate america and believe that america is the source of many of the problems that they have many of the problems that exist in the world and when vladimir putin gave his gave a variety of different speeches lately on ukraine he keeps talking about america as if we have as if we're he's invading america or as if we're in europe yeah, we're on the other side of the world but he keeps talking about us as though this is somehow us. We're the reason why this is all going on and we've insulted them and we've caused all these problems and we're the ones pushing NATO and everything else. So yes, it is so important for people to not get caught in the trap of believing mm-hmm. that just because we are are to some extent conservatives, a lot of us are nationalists, we believe in America and American exceptionalism and American values and all of that, that that somehow puts us in the same camp with Vladimir Putin. It doesn't, in the same way that it doesn't put us in the same camp as uh, nationalistic Iranians who believe in Sharia law. I don't think I, I fall into that camp either, even though I am a nationalist and they're nationalists too.
0: All right. I've got a new sponsor for today that you should look into. It's called the Enduring World Bible Commentary by David Guzik, and it's used and trusted by millions of people worldwide. It's been around for 25 years. I personally haven't read it, but a lot of people have. So it's really something that maybe you should look into. Maybe it'd be a great resource for you to help you better understand the Bible. It explains God's word in a in a really simple, clear, and easy to use way. It's translated into many languages, including Spanish, Arabic, Chinese, and more. It breaks down the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's simple enough for everyday Christians, yet detailed enough for even the most seasoned believers and Bible teachers. So right now, Enduring Word is offering a downloadable ebook titled The King's Kingdom: A Deeper Look at the Sermon on the Mount by David Guzik. It's absolutely free. Find the Enduring Word Bible Commentary, get your free ebook at enduringword.com/ally enduringwordcom Allie. So tell me a little bit more. The why behind all of these people World Economic Forum, Build Back Better, Great Reset people why are they so focused on Ukraine? And maybe it's already explained by the things we talked about. And if we could just clarify that. it I think even people who understand, you know, obviously it's bad what Russia is doing. They have a lot of sympathy for the Ukrainian people, obviously. When they saw the thread by George Soros, who has worked very hard to sow the seeds of discord in the United States to make sure that we don't have any enforceable border law, to make sure that he is funding the election of DAs who will not enforce the law. He has undermined law and order in many cities across the United States, has actively funded and worked against real, true democracy in the United States. He is obviously anti-nationalism, anti-American patriotism. He sees it as one of his goals, maybe as a part of the Great Reset, to undermine Western civilization and undermine the United States, Um, he tweeted out a thread saying that, you know, we need to stand for the Ukrainian people, that they have a right to their sovereignty, which is just kind of laughable. He has worked against the sovereignty of European nations, too. Um, And it seems like he and a lot of other people, Justin Trudeau is another one, Uh, standing up for the sovereignty, for the borders, for the nationalism and the patriotism of Ukraine. That, to a lot of people, seems a little sketchy, a little hypocritical. And it makes the critical thinking person step back and say, why? Why? What is their interest in all of this? So in your estimation, is it just anti-Russia or what else is going on there, do you think?
1: No, it's, it's all part of this ideological war between these two camps. And one of the key uh, foundational aspects of the internationalism movement of the Great Reset is that everybody has to participate in it. I mean, when Klaus Schwab first launched the Great Reset slogan at this June event in 2020, one of the things he said was that every country must participate and every industry must be transformed. And he specifically called out the United States and China and said, they have to do it too. We all have to do it. And, the, and I actually think that goes back to, uh, that's a fundamentally Marxist idea. Uh, there's this idea that has existed on the left for a very long time that unless, and I actually think it's very reasonable, and I sort of buy it, that in order for leftism to work, everybody has to do it. Because if, if there's any dissenters at all, if there's any place for you to go to escape it, you will. You that's will. what will happen. That our ideas so, are so
0: good we have to force it on people.
1: <laughs> that's ex- that's exactly right. And so from an internationalism perspective, if we're going to, you know, battle climate change or we're going to have ESG scores we're going to reshape the social contract we're going to change the way businesses work we saw this on a very uh, minor level um or i think last year when the global you know european american community came together and said we're going to we we're going to put together a global minimum tax of or something on corporations. Why did they do that? Because they understood that what had been going on uh, previously was when one country would raise its corporate income taxes, something that the left really likes, other countries would say, wow, well, if we lower our corporate income taxes then the corporations will come to us. We can't have that because if you have that, it becomes a race to really low taxes and that's not what they want. If we can get everybody to agree that we're gonna have this same tax rate, There's no place for corporations to run to. So that whole idea of and climate change is the classic example of that, right? They're constantly telling us all the time that if any anyone dissents, any big country dissents from this, we're all going to die from climate change in 100 years. So everybody has to sign on. Do they believe that
0: or is climate change the pretense for control?
1: I think some of them believe it for sure uh, to, su- to some, you know, it's hard to tell exactly what people believe and what they, uh, and why they believe it. Um, I think I- I'm very suspicious that most of the leaders, political leaders, especially actually believe that climate change is an existential threat, meaning an a threat to human civilization, which right. is what they mean when they say existential, when you see them, Uh, as Barack Obama did, buying a multi-million dollar mansion on Martha's Vineyard, which is an island, uh, that his own government said that very spot where he built, where he has this mansion, was going to be swallowed up by the seas within the next few decades. His own government said that in a report. The idea that those people, Leonardo DiCaprio, another one flying around the world in private jets while telling everyone that we should be biking to work, like do they really believe that? Yeah. Yeah, they're all, they all do it. They're all gigantic hypocrites, every single one of them. So if they actually believed the world was about to end, they would be like Greta Thunberg. They'd be riding boats across the Atlantic yeah, Ocean to come integrity. to America, right? She believes it. And yeah. if you listen to Greta Thunberg talk about these people, uh, the, the Joe Bidens of the world and uh, Boris Johnson, people like that, she talks about them as, this, as if they're horrible people, just terrible people. Mm, she hates wow. those people just as much as just as much as I do, yeah. because she thinks that they're all a bunch of hypocrites doing this for political reasons. So, yeah, I, I would say that it's probably the most likely scenario. Yeah.
0: So I have more to I have I have more to ask on that. But oh, my gosh, as always, I need four more hours, Justin. Um, OK, but let me go back to Russia and Ukraine really fast, um, because, again, acknowledging that what's going on is not good and that there are people that are dying and hurting and all that. I am like one degree of separation from someone who had to escape Ukraine. And so I'm not doubting just the like horrors that are being experienced there. But I also think that people have a valid reason to to wonder why there seems to be like a unanimous, unanimous talking points about what's going on in Ukraine, why people that we typically are totally opposed to when it comes to all of our policy ideas, our ideas of proper foreign policy and domestic policy, why they all seem to be saying the exact same thing, why there is so much focus on Ukraine when it seems like, and this was while Trump was president, I i Believe it was at the beginning of 2020, right before COVID, when China overtook Hong Kong, which was an autonomous region that was really governed under First Amendment principles. Uh, really, the West hardly, outside of like a few conservatives, the West hardly made a peep about that. I have a hard time believing that when when China overtakes Taiwan, that we are going to see this kind of response. And yet. As this is happening to Ukraine, we have all of these very, what I believe, like Justin Trudeau, authoritarian leaders saying, wow, this is awful. They're anti-sovereignty, anti-borders for their own country, saying, wow, we need to protect Ukrainian borders. And then what I think is really troubling is that you've got these major corporations, Glenn Beck, who you've obviously worked with a lot, posted a picture of all of these corporations, Amazon, Adidas, Facebook, Dell, Samsung, PlayStation, Pornhub, TikTok, I mean, all of these organizations, a lot of whom we know do not have like any actual objective principles or values or morals whatsoever, they have left the Russian market. Um, I believe it's MasterCard and other banking and credit card services that have now disallowed just normal Russian civilians from using their services. How that's going to affect Putin, who is an authoritarian, I have no idea, Why? This response from everyone to what Russia is doing. Meanwhile, China has been imperializing poor countries in different continents for decades. Not a peep out of these people, not a peep about Hong Kong. Again, I don't think that they are going to have the same response to Taiwan. And we are told if we question the response uh, to this uh, by any of these entities that were pro Putin you know, pro-murder, whatever it is. And it just reminds me, I'm almost done, but it just reminds me of, okay, at the beginning of COVID, if you question if the economic impact of all of this, and if it was worth it, and if kids should be pulled out of school, it's because you're a grandma killer. Um, If you question the tactics of BLM, if you say, oh, I don't think that like looting is a great thing for these uh poor communities, it was because you were you know, pro-black people getting shot by the cops and you are a racist. Um, And then if you are questioning at all, at all the response to what's happening in Ukraine and how much we should be focusing on that and how much the Russian people themselves should be punished, then it's because you, you know, want to murder Ukrainians or whatever. And then if you doubt at all that young children should be put on puberty blockers, then it's because you want, you know, trans kids to commit suicide. So if you if you question the progressive mainstream narrative on anything, it is always that you want people to die. It's always what it is. And I'm sorry. But yeah, some people are going to look at the track record of those kinds of things and look at this and say, this is the same exact playbook as what has been happening in these other issues. You're telling me if I question anything about the response to Ukraine, that I'm some kind of like pro Putin, pro murder, I'm sorry. And then people just kind of bow out and get cynical. And i i'm I can't really blame them at this point. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I, I think that the coordination is one hundred percent related to all of the things that we've talked about before with corporations, the banking system, ESG systems, all of that. I think you see the coordination because they believe that's the best path forward. They believe that's how they're going to make all of this work. It's part of their larger plans. Um, I think that the reason why you see the hypocrisy here where people are extremely concerned about Russia, but they're still buying virtually everything from China, which has a million people in concentration camps right now, murders people all the time as a gross human rights violator, does business with all sorts of other human uh, rights violators all over the world, and nobody seems concerned about that, I think is largely economic. Uh, everyone, China, the brilliance of, of China's strategy over the past 20 or to 30 years has been that they have made the world dependent on them for virtually everything. And so there's only so much criticism you can do of China before they start to uh, threaten to kill economic ties and all. I mean, we owe China money. We have, we are totally dependent on them for virtually everything. So the idea that we can just go out there and say, you know, China's a human rights violator nation and we should just completely cut ourselves off from them, the way they're talking about that with Russia now, that's not really possible because of the horrible policy decisions that have been made by our government in the United States and also by European governments over a very long time where they have shipped all of our jobs overseas, they have sold their souls to China for cheap labor and cheap products so that we could have you know, more television sets, bigger television sets, cheaper shoes, et cetera. And now we have no ability to control our supply chain. We have no ability to cut ourselves off from this, this really horrific government in many ways. And instead we have to watch them take over uh, um, a, uh, Hong Kong, and we have to probably watch them take over Taiwan as well. Um, because what are we going to do? I mean, the NBA, I mean there, there there's been incredible examples of people in the yeah. NBA, LeBron James, other people criticizing uh, China even just sort of in passing or talking about Taiwan as though it were an actual nation, have the audacity to do that. and and then immediately they have to apologize because, Somebody in China called somebody in Hollywood or the NBA or whatever and said, you can't say that about us. And immediately they backed down because ultimately they are beholden to them in a way that we are not beholden to Russia. And it would be very easy to destroy their energy industry and just figure out another way. It's going to cause massive problems in the short term. But in the long term, do we really need Russian energy? Probably not. We can figure out some way around that. But do we need china's manufacturing at this point in time yep or else we're not going to be able to function as an economy
0: okay but my question about that would be if, if that's how they see things why wouldn't the biden administration sanction russian the russian oil industry why are we relying on russian oil like if that if if that's the if that's the play if that's the goal
1: Right. In the short term, the reason why they're so concerned about doing this is because it would completely disrupt the price of it's already disrupting the yeah. price of oil you're seeing you know oil at over $120 i don't even know what it is gallon. today yeah it, it it's it's totally insane we're going to have $8, $9, $10 gasoline in some parts of the world a western world um, you're seeing these kinds of things happen in Europe and California we already have $5, $6 gasoline in certain places it's going to get worse in the near term economically, we're in a really bad place right now. Contrary to what Joe Biden keeps telling us, he knows that we're in a really bad place. We have rampant inflation. And one of the big causes of inflation is higher energy prices. We have a sluggish economy. We still have lots and lots of jobs that we haven't recovered from the the, the pandemic lockdowns and all of that. Yeah, they so keep the saying idea- that.
0: They keep saying, oh, we added jobs last month. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Months are jobs are coming back that were lost over the months of lockdown. So this is not adding jobs. If you steal someone's dollar and you give it back, that is not giving someone a dollar.
1: Right. Exactly. And especially if you don't even give them all the money back. So right. if you steal ten dollars and you give eight of those dollars back, I that's not. Dollars.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's
1: not how it works. But right. that's the logic of the White House right now in their messaging. So. I mean, they they really can't afford to kill it in many ways. Now, politically, I think they're feeling tremendous pressure from both the left and the right to do just that. But economically, it would be disastrous for America. It would be disastrous, even more disastrous, for certain countries in Europe uh, that are really heavily dependent, like Germany, where they get a, a, a huge amount of their energy. I think it's like 20 to 30% or so, right. ultimately comes from from uh, from Russia. I mean they can't afford to just lose access to 20% of their energy overnight. So, And the Biden administration is not willing to have more domestic energy production, so we can't export our energy elsewhere because he's not allowing us to do more drilling on public lands or put more liquefied natural gas, which is how you transport natural gas overseas, uh, terminals into various places. He's not allowing us to do these things, build more pipelines. So because of climate change, so if you're not going to do those things, how is Europe going to be able to survive cutting themselves off from this key piece of their economy? And that is exactly why Vladimir Putin chose to do it right now, because he knew that it would be so hard for Europe and the United States to break away. It was a really smart, strategic decision. Again, going back to this idea that he's not a crazy person uh in the sense that he's irrational. Right. He's he's an authoritarian murderous thug, but he is a a cold calculating well thought out murderous thug. And so these decisions are not insane. Yeah. They make sense within his understanding of the world and what he sees for Russia going forward.
0: And that's exactly why Putin under the Obama administration Victor Davis Hanson was just telling us about this. Uh, that he actually, or actually he was saying in another podcast, he didn't get to it when I was talking to him last week, but Putin has funded environmentalists and environmental groups here because shutting down fracking and oil pipelines in the United States means more dependence on Russia. And that, of course, has been a priority of um, Joe Biden. And now they're saying, oh, well, you know, the Keystone XL pipeline, that would have taken years to finish. And so it wouldn't have had any effect. But that's not the only, Step that Joe Biden has taken in ensuring that we are depending on more foreign oil, and now apparently he is going to Venezuela to try to lift sanctions <laughs> and try to get more oil from him. So I just don't buy that this whole climate thing—that oh, we need to shut down these pipelines for—it's about weakening the United States and weakening the West. So even while they're saying all of this we're basically funding and Europe is basically funding the invasion of Ukraine by relying on Russia for oil that we should not be relying on them for.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and if we had even if we could snap our fingers and magically run the entire country on windmills and solar panels, yep. which is an impossibility, yep. where would those windmills and solar panels come from? They would come from China, and yep. China is also a human rights abuser. So when you're going to the Middle East to get additional oil, as they tried to do, and Venezuela, another human rights-violating nation, to try to get that while making a moral argument about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. It's beyond hypocritical. They will do anything they possibly can to avoid the obvious solution of just having more domestic energy production here in the United States. They'll do anything. They'll go to any tyrant they can find in order to avoid that obvious solution. And that's There's many different reasons for that. But I think the biggest reason is because this is the means by which they plan on transforming a a large segment of the economy. And the uh, former, uh, he may have been chief of staff, but one of the high level people within uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's camp, he's no longer there. When he was asked about the Green New Deal at one point, uh, maybe a couple years ago, he said, look, this isn't really about green energy. This is about reshaping the economy. That's what this is about. Didn't you guys know that? I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. Yeah. So- I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that that's, that's the plan. And if you just decide, you know what, we're going to ramp up domestic oil and gas and coal and all this stuff in order to combat what's going on over there, you undermine all of the, the progress that they've been trying to make toward that larger goal.
0: Last sponsor for the day. Well, The Great Reset got you down the end of the world imminent, you need to make sure that you are still going to be able to provide for and feed your family in these trying times. Inflation, you guys know, is at an all-time high. That is affecting the price of everything, not just the price of gas, but also the price of groceries, including and especially the meat at the grocery store. A lot of our meat, about 80%, in fact, is imported from overseas that you buy at the grocery store. If you want to support American industries, American ranches, and American farming, which has just been destroyed because of globalist policies over the past several years, then you need to buy all of your meat from good ranchers. Don't worry about going to the grocery store and getting meat that was imported. And uh, you don't even need to support some of these big chain grocery stores. You need to support this American company that's run by salt of the earth, awesome Christian people that share our values. They get all of their meat from American farms, American farmers. It's ethically raised, it's sustainably sourced, it's super high quality. I use uh, this product almost every single day. We love our good ranchers meat. It's better than organic chicken. It's craft beef, all different cuts of steak. And I just like knowing that my family is provided for protected and supplied in this way. We've got a ton of Good Ranchers meat in our freezer. It shows up right at your front door on dry ice individually wrapped. We put it in our deep freezer and then we thought whenever we want to eat it, which is almost every single night. So I really couldn't recommend this country or this country. Well, not that, but this company is what I meant to say. I really could not recommend this company more. Plus they're keeping their prices really affordable in the midst of inflation. So that's always a good thing. If you go to goodranchers.com, com slash alley you get thirty dollars off your order plus free express shipping so go to goodranchers.com slash alley use promo code alley that's goodranchers com slash alley promo code alley for thirty dollars off and free express shipping and to your point, this is also World Economic Forum line, Biden's energy secretary, I don't think that we have this clip to play out, but I just remembered this, um, that she said that, yeah, you know what? Right now we are going through a difficult time with higher gas prices, but that's because we are going through what she called an energy transition. All of this, they believe, is transitional like you said, really for the reformation of the economy in line with their interests and making sure that the fossil fuel energy goes out of business is part of that. Now, whether or not that's truly because they think that's going to help the climate or just because that helps their interests, um, I'm not sure, but that's what he said. And also one of Biden's nominees, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, Sally Omorova, um, she said in an interview, interestingly, Uh, recently, interestingly, uh, November 9th, 2021, we want the oil, coal and gas industries to go bankrupt. And that's what we have to do if we want to tackle climate change. So it's also hard to believe that a lot of this stuff isn't actually intentional. And then here, actually, I do have this clip. Let me play this out for you and get your reaction. Pete Buttigieg his response to this, after Saki said a lot of the things that you did, that oh, we just need clean energy. Not to mention, not only do those like do those windmills and solar panels come from China, also did you? They're not biodegradable. They're actually nope. like when you have to throw them away. These uh, the blades for the windmills, they're actually bad for the environment. It's also ironic. So Saki's saying that, and then Pete Buttigieg is saying this. This is his grand solution to, gra- uh, to gas prices.
1: Last month, we announced a $5 billion investment to build out a nationwide electric vehicle charging network so the people from rural to suburban to urban communities can all benefit from the gas savings of driving an EV.
0: All right, so that's his solution because that's what people want to do right now. With record high inflation, people have just got, you know, 60,000 extra dollars lying around in the couch cushions. They're going to say, oh, yeah, let me just get a a brand new electric car when the the car dealerships don't even have the parts right now. I mean, this is his solution to paying five dollars a gallon for gas.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's completely it's completely ridiculous. There is no demand for this. There is there is no one clamoring for this to be the only option for people when they're buying a new car. It has never been there's never been a period of time where most consumers were like, you know, we don't want gasoline powered cars anymore. There are some there's a there's a subsect of them that want that and that's fine. But the vast majority of people are fine with the cars that they have now. There's no reason for us to go in that direction. There is no one clamoring. And the idea that you would have a nationwide, you know, uh, all of these different charging stations all over the country – uh, in rural America, especially, they don't care about this. Yeah. <laughs> so the idea that we need to build this network because there's all these people in rural, I don't know, uh, Kansas, that want to buy a Tesla, but they just can't figure out where to find a charging station is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Of course they don't want that. Yeah. You don't start with the charging stations then work your way out. You start with the demand for the electric cars, and then you figure out a way to build out the infrastructure for it after the fact but again it all stems from this idea that they're not really tr- they're not they're not doing this as a result of demand for these products and services they're doing it because they've decided this is the way they want the world to work this is how they want the economy to be transformed and they're going to basically make people go in that direction whether they want to or not
0: yep yep and also what's also interesting in all of this and this is i know we have to end but uh, we are seeing even as they say people, you know, Biden, and Trudeau that they're anti the authoritarianism of Putin. Um that that's what they say. So they're fighting against climate change, they're fighting against authoritarianism, they're fighting against misinformation and anti democracy forces. That's why they're so like pro Ukraine. Even as by the way, totally missed it, but America, according to the New York Times, bombed Somalia, an apparent extremist group in Somalia just last month and like no one no one made a peep about that it's interesting who knows who knows the the things that are going on that we're not paying attention to while all of this is happening no matter what you think about Ukraine there's no doubt in my mind that the Biden administration and all the people that we're talking about will use it as a distraction tool absolutely but going back to what I was saying just about the hypocrisy of this um is you've got someone like Trudeau, and I'm going to play this clip quickly, saying that he, who is World Economic Forum through and through, you've got Klaus Schwab saying that they've, you know, penetrated cabinets with their World Economic Forum leaders that I think, and he said like half of Trudeau's cabinet, World Economic Forum, Trudeau has been praised by Klaus Schwab himself. They say, these fascists say that they are the ones that are opposing authoritarianism. Let me play you the stunning clip from Justin Trudeau
1: and we've talked about it in 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 the news not just about ukraine but about democracies around the world that we see a bit of a slippage in our democracies countries turning towards slightly more authoritarian leaders countries allowing increasing misinformation and disinformation to be shared on social media turning people against the values and the principles of democracies
0: that are so strong Justin Haskins, this is the same guy <laughs> that encouraged corporations yeah. and banks and GoFundMe to cut off to cut off truckers and peaceful protesters, supply of cash and resources because they were opposing his dictatorial mandates in Canada. This is that same guy that is not afraid to censor people if they say something that he doesn't like. And yet this is the same thing we see with Joe Biden and these left-wing authoritarians. They say that they are for democracy. In actuality, they are the ones that are pushing against any dissent. And so ironic, Justin Trudeau wearing his little Ukrainian fra- flag pin. I mean, there. I'm sorry, as we say in the South, there is a fly in the buttermilk when it comes to all of this. Can you tell me just a little bit? We only have a little bit of time. How everything that happened in Canada... And what we saw, the actions by these banks, the push to regulate cryptocurrency to basically create a world in which, okay, a bank can cut you off if they don't like what you say or they don't like your political stance. How does this all play into what's going on with The Great Reset?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. The champion of individual rights, even in that clip right there where he's talking about how we're slipping towards authoritarianism, he specifically uses as an example People, a government's allowing things that he calls misinformation on social media as an example of authoritarianism. No, when you silence people on social media, that's an example of authoritarianism, not the opposite, not allowing people to have free speech. That's not how this works. Ultimately, going back to what we said earlier about this ideological war that's going on, there is a ton of propaganda. The propaganda on the sort of Russian, not nationalist, fascist kind of side of things with China and, and all those people is that they justify their authoritarianism by saying this is to defend traditionalism. It's to defend our values. It's to defend our identity and our ethnicities and all of these other things, our borders on the other side. It's supposedly to defend democracy. It's to defend uh, uh, freedom as they define it, but not too much freedom, because if we have too much freedom, then that apparently is also a form of authoritarianism. And what you saw in Canada is exactly is exactly what we're talking about. Both sides don't actually believe in freedom at all. They believe in imposing their values, their wills, their policies, their economic transition plans, all of that stuff on the rest of us, not giving us the ability to make our own choices. One side, because they have a very paternalistic, traditionalistic understanding of the world and they want to defend it and not allow too much freedom, because freedom means that we're going to slip away from our traditional values. And on the other side, Mm. it's because if we give people too much freedom, then they might question our authority and they might not buy into this whole plan of internationalizing everything and we can't allow for that either. Really, neither side is a good option. So any conservative that thinks that the sort of national fascism side is closer to what you want is completely wrong. And any, honestly, many left-wing liberal people, if you think that this sort of Justin Trudeau thing is the right way of going that pathway, and you think that that's going to provide you with a free society, then you're totally wrong too. Neither side is interested in giving people true freedom or true options. And that's why we have to reject both of them at the same time and walk a, a, a middle course, which is really what America's supposed to be all about to begin with. And I think that's why both sides really don't like what you and I would consider to be traditional Americanism.
0: Cool. Justin, 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 what in the world? I guess we are just doing everything that we can and talking about this. I know we've <laughs> talked about before, just giving people kind of like action items, localize, uh, depend on your community, yourself, your family. If you don't go to church, get into a local church hunker down start depending on yourself on each other make your world smaller less overwhelming continue to pursue that which is good and right and true don't compromise on um our values at all and just continue to seek the truth there's a lot of propaganda there's a lot of nefarious actors out there um thank you so much for helping us clear through the chaos per usual i'm sure we'll have you back on really soon thank you so much justin
1: Of course. Anytime.